Hi guys, welcome to Backchat. I'm Natasha, editor of the podcast. This week I chatted to Peter Grester, an award-winning foreign correspondent who spent 25 years working for the BBC, Reuters and Al Jazeera in some of the world's most volatile places. After being imprisoned in Egypt for over a year under false accusations in 2013, Peter published a book outlining the link between the war on terror and the battle against truth. Here now with more news, debate and opinion. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So these days, we hear a lot about the struggles of 21st century journalism and the rise of fake news. Yet these issues are often associated with Donald Trump, Russian bots or social media. However, you believe that the war on ideas started with 9-11. Can you explain why? I mean, there's always been a war of ideas. But what happened around 9-11 was that um, we saw the war become a binary conflict. Um, you might remember, or those of us who are around, uh, around 9-11, will remember that George W. Bush um, stood before a joint session of Congress uh, in the days immediately following the attacks. And he said, in this conflict, in this war on terror, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And that seemed like a reasonably decent thing to, to say, given the scale of the attacks and what it meant. But if you drill down a little bit more deeply, what you see is that for journalists, it became a real problem because it meant that we were not able to perform our traditional roles as, as journalists, and that was interrogate all sides of the conflict. It became a war over ideas, a war over isms. The war on terror became the clash of civilizations in, in the phrase it's often used to describe the conflict. And that meant that the place where ideas themselves are transmitted becomes a part of the battlefield, and that is, by definition, the media. Um, now, as I said, journalists, when George W. Bush declared it to be a, um, a binary conflict, it became impossible to speak to all parties to the dispute. Um, you might remember that um, Al, Jazeera, Al Jazeera's bureau was bombed by the Americans um, soon after they got an interview with the one uh, person that I wager that just about every journalist in the world would have wanted to have spoken to at that point, and that was Osama bin Laden. Um, at the same time, or around the same time, the Taliban intercepted a group of journalists who were traveling from uh, Pakistan up to Kabul. They ambushed the convoy. Um, they let a whole bunch of other people go, but they kept the journalists uh, apart. They dragged the journalists into the hills and they murdered them simply because they were journalists. And so in the trial that followed, the Taliban acknowledged that they, the, the guys that were responsible for it, admitted that they were behind it, admitted they were involved, uh, but said that they were simply acting on orders of their superiors to go after journalists. So what we saw was a, a really significant shift uh, where journalists were attacked simply for doing, for being who they were or for doing their jobs. Um, and that that, I think, was a really significant turning point. It, it meant that journalism or journalists were, were really parts of the conflict in ways that we, we really hadn't been before. The most recent example of journalists being targeted was the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Hasoji in Turkey, which obviously made international headlines. Yet, sadly, his death is part of a wider story, as 47 journalists have already been killed this year, with over half of deaths occurring in Afghanistan, Syria, Israel and Yemen. 
Why is the struggle against truth particularly fierce in the Middle East? Um, I think that's because I think that's because that's where this war on terror, this clash of ideas, if you like, is really playing out. That's where we're seeing the um, the groups come together. That's where we're seeing, in particular, local journalists being targeted, and it's a really difficult situation for them. They're stuck in the middle of this of this fight, and in a lot of cases, they're being killed simply because they're daring to speak to all of the parties in, involved. They're speaking to the Islamists, um, and uh, a lot of the governments in the area are seeing that as a threat. But they're also speaking to governments, um, and that makes them a threat to the Islamists. Is it also a concern for journalists in other parts of the world, um, or is this more exclusively a problem for the Middle East? No, it's not just an a problem for the Middle East. We're seeing it play out all over the world, um, not necessarily with the same serious bloody consequences. Um, in a lot of places, uh, in fact, what happened to us in Egypt was an example of that, where where governments are defining the war on terror so loosely as to include pretty much anything they want to. And, and remember, the, the war on terror, when you think about it, is, is a very difficult thing to define. It's a very spongy, mushy, fungible term. Um, and governments are increasingly defining national terrorism and national security ever more broadly. And so we were in Egypt... We, we were working and covering all small parties, talk, talking to all of the, the groups involved. Um, the Egyptian authorities had decided that the Muslim Brotherhood was involved in acts of terror. And so by speaking to them, we were pr supposedly promoting terrorist ideology and, and imprisoned on terrorism charges. If you think about the way that other Western governments, including the United States, has applied things like the Espionage Act, um, Increasingly, it's gone after journalists who, uh, or their sources, who were involved in supposedly in breaches of national security. But in almost every case, they, they were covering stories that were not so much issues of national security, but issues of, of political embarrassment. Um, in Australia, we're seeing the government widen national security laws to include the kinds of things that would traditionally have been protected under freedom of speech and press freedom regulations. And so I think that's where we're seeing journalists around the world getting caught up in this. As I said, the Middle East is a particular problem, um, but that doesn't mean that, that, that we're not seeing variations on that theme all over the world. And as you just mentioned, you have first-hand experience of the battle against independent journalism, spending 400 days imprisoned in Egypt over these false accusations. Reading your book, you really get a sense of how emotionally traumatic the situation was. For instance, you wrote about the agonising slowness of prison life. How did you keep going? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> um, I think the thing is that one of the things that you, you, we learned to do was to stop thinking about about getting out. Um, we, I know, and a lot of people are quite surprised when I say this, but we, we gave up on hope. And that doesn't mean that you, you quit, that you, you capitulated, that you rolled over and accepted your fate. But what it meant was that you stopped trying to um, imagine that tomorrow you might be free, because every time we imagined that, those hopes were dashed. So what you had to deal with, the reality of the, of the environment that we were facing, the, the, the prison, the uh, bars, the walls, the doors, and so on. 
um, you had to accept that that's where we were at that particular point. You had to deal with what the limits of, of what you could and couldn't do um, and simply face each day as it comes. Thinking or hoping, praying or hoping for something better was always a fool's errand because invariably it would mean that we'd be disappointed and those constant disappointments became incredibly difficult psychologically to cope with. Didn't you also start a radio show in the prison? <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> uh, we found ourselves we found ourselves in prison alongside uh, most of the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, there was the Murshid, the supreme guide of the Muslim Brotherhood, the, 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 the spiritual leader, if you like. We were across. He was in the cell next door to us. Um, in one cell above us uh, was uh, Hisham Khandil, the, the former prime minister. Um, across the in the cell directly opposite us, we had. Saeed Katutni, the Speaker of the House. Um, we had one of the main opposition leaders in the cell next door, to the other side, on, on, uh, on another side of us. Um, we had the Ministers of Labour and Supply in, in the same prison. So we had a, a whole host of really extraordinary, interesting characters. And so we did what journalists would do. We, we uh, started our own radio show. We, uh, once lockdown had happened, everyone the, and the guards had gone. Everyone pulled their beds to, to the door and stood on, on, on the beds and, and shouted out through the little portholes and we'd conduct interviews um, and uh, ask them about what had happened, ask them about why they'd made the decisions that they'd made, interrogated the policies and ideas and, and held some fantastic discussions. Yeah, I think one of your colleagues described the prison as journalist heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was in a lot of ways. But since your release, you have continued to work as a journalist and you're now a chair in journalism at the University of Queensland. In this role, you have been researching ways to combat fake news and particularly how the media can overcome algorithms from Silicon Valley, which rule how journalism operates today. Could you explain this research in a bit more detail and have you found any solutions? Uh, no, we're, we're just, just, just at the very early stages of, of this. Um, I mean, we're really thinking about two elements of this. We're thinking about pushing back on the um, the national security legislation, which is making it much harder for journalists to function. Um, and we're also working on changing the fundamental ecosystem that journalism is now working in. You mentioned the algorithms that the search engines have been using. Um, that's part of what we're looking at. Um, we're also looking at the financial environment, not just the business models, which is where most people seem to be focusing on or focusing their attention, but on, on the entire, the, the technological, the legal, the political, the regulatory framework that, that uh, journalism is now operating in and, and starting to rethink how that works and, and rethink how we can redesign it. My view is that journalism has, has been forced to adapt to an environment that really isn't fit for purpose and that we need to rethink and redesign that system to make it work better, not just for journalism, but for democracy more broadly. It's quite difficult to try and find almost more national solutions to the international problem. Um, I mean, how do you think this would be worked through? Do you think it would be politicians uniting globally? Um, well, that may be one. That may be one way. But I think I think we I think there are things that we can do to protect journalism. I think that also news organisers, uh, sorry, the, 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 the social media platforms themselves, I think, are starting to come to understand that if they don't adapt um, and help and, and change the way that they operate and support journalism more directly, whether it's 
uh, through direct financial contributions, you know, payments to journalism for for, for the content that the platforms use, or or whether it's um, changing the way, redesigning the platforms to make sure that the, the journalism is both good quality journalism is both promoted and, and but also financially benefits in some form. Um, they're having to re- they're coming having to understand that that, that they need to, to change. And if they don't, then then we will re- need to, to think about how we regulate the system. Um, I think that there are other things too that governments can can do to support journalism. Um, we know that if we accept that that good journalism um, is is a public good, that it that everyone benefits from good journalism, then maybe we need to think about using levies to to, to finance uh, public interest journalism in some way. Um, there are all sorts of systems and, and, and ideas that are being that are being adopted and tried and tested around the world, and we want to take a good hard look at all of them and try and come up with a hybrid system that perhaps brings together the best of those ideas and makes sure that we end up with solid, sustainable, and financially viable journalism. And finally, looking more broadly at the future of the media and free speech, are you feeling optimistic? I'm 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 concerned. I'm deeply troubled. I wouldn't be starting the the research if if I if if I wasn't if I was if I was optimistic, because I do think that we need to, to take action. But I'm not a pessimist in the sense that I think it's hopeless. I don't think it's hopeless. I think we've engineered our way into this problem, and I think we can engineer our way out of it. I also think that um, people will understand. And do understand generally the, the, the need, the importance of good journalism in a functioning democracy. Um, you know, if we if, imagine a world without journalism, imagine a world in which the only information we had from our politicians was from the politicians' press releases issued on on Facebook and Twitter. You know, it's not a particularly appealing world, and we know that that world is going to become dysfunctional pretty quickly. So I think that people understand the need to, to fix this. Um, we're in a period of transition. I don't know quite what journalism is going to look like at the other side of this period, but I'm pretty sure we'll get through it at some point. If we just leave it up to chance, though, I think there's a pretty good chance that it'll it'll turn out, turn out badly, which is why we need to really be proactive about, about researching, thinking, and designing uh, solutions that, that are really going to be beneficial for everyone. So it's almost a call for arms, as in if people do things, you're optimistic. But if, if we just leave it to chance and no one does anything, then it's not going to go very yeah. 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 Peter, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. No problem. No problem. Here now with more news, debate and opinion. 